Thank you, Karen, and uh, for that very flattering introduction. Master of Ceremony is, of course, a very fancy way of saying I'm the traffic warden for tonight, uh, and I'll do my best to direct traffic effectively. Uh, my comments are really, to begin with, quite procedural in nature. Um, just, I'll just break down the evening for you a little bit and then hand over to our first speaker. One thing I will say is that um, I think we're in for an, quite an interesting evening. Uh, we've got some very honest speakers. Um, so if, you, if you're into the truth, you're, you're going to get a healthy dose of it uh, this evening. And uh, to invoke the spirit of Jack Nicholson, let's see if you can handle it. Anyway, um, we're going we're gonna to hear in a bit from uh, our host, Mike Winter, who is the Director for Global Engagement at the University of London here, um, who will hand over to uh, David Lamb, the Chairman of the BCA. We'll also hear from our Honorary President, Arnold Ekbe, and last but, of course, by no means least, uh, Mo will take the stage and, and give us some perspectives. We will then go into a Q&A, uh, so that's your opportunity to come in. I'll say it now, I'll say it again then, and I'll repeat it if I have to. Um, be brief. If you're going to come in with questions, comments, we want your comments, we want your questions, but try to keep it to the point so we can give as many voices as possible an opportunity to speak. Anyway, that's all from me for now. I'll be back later on. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Mike Winter uh, from the University of London. Mike? Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real pleasure to welcome you to the University of London and to Senate House, uh, built in the 1930s, for those of you unfamiliar with this magnificent building, and still today the nerve center of a vast enterprise, the University of London, um, that has a federation of several world-famous colleges, um, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with, like the LSE, UCL, King's, and so on. Um, this is, as I say, the headquarters where the Vice-Chancellor sits. Um, it also houses the School for Advanced Study and the world-famous Senate House Library. Um, as a co-host, I've been allowed two or three minutes just to tell you a little bit about the University of London, which, um, by the way, is a member of the BCA. Somebody, a colleague, very kindly and was talking uh, with just beforehand, said, I think it'd be a really good idea if the University of London joined the BCA, and I was delighted to say that we are already a member. Um, the university has had access at the heart of our mission since our founding in 1836. We were the first university in this country to admit women for degrees in 1878, and since 1858, we have been offering degrees around the world to those who, for whatever reason, cannot or do not wish to come to London. So that today we have 52,000 students in 180 countries taking our undergraduate and master's degrees. This includes more than 4,000 students across 48 of Africa's 54 countries, taking degrees that are directed academically by our world-leading institutions that I mentioned earlier, LSE, SOAS, Queen Mary, and others. The university is engaged with some truly outstanding individuals in Africa over the years. Nelson Mandela studied law with us while in prison awaiting trial. Dr. Luisa Diogo, one of our graduates, became the first female prime minister of Mozambique. And Wallace Oyinka, the celebrated Nigerian poet and another of our Nobel Prize winners, graduated from the university in 1974. 
And there is something really unique about our graduates as a whole. Having studied in their own countries, the vast majority remain in their local, national, and regional professional contexts, contributing to the longer-term development of their respective societies. And many of our current graduates now occupy senior positions in the legal, economic, business, social, educational, cultural, and indeed diplomatic fields. And we're especially proud of our historical engagement with Africa going back many decades. The university was instrumental in helping to set up higher education institutions in a number of countries that have since become major universities in their own right. The Gordon Memorial College is now the University of Khartoum. University College Gold Coast is now the University of Ghana. University College of Ibadan is now Nigeria's oldest university, the University of Ibadan. The University of Zimbabwe began life with a partnership with the University of London and the Rhodesia and Nyasaland University. And the University of East Africa, which offered University of London degrees, was split in 1970 into the three leading universities you see today, the University of Nairobi, University of Dar es Salaam, and Makerere University in Uganda. So access is, and development is important, but so, of course, is innovation. Our latest developments include the Masters in Professional Accounting, together with the ACCA, and the academic direction for that comes from UCL. And this year, with Queen Mary, we've launched our global MBA. And with these and other cutting-edge programs, we're also developing further engagement with the corporate sector, this is where you come in, in offering professional development opportunities, or perhaps hosting placements for our students, or supporting your staff on bursary schemes set up and jointly funded with us. We are keen to further such relationships, particularly in West, East, and Southern Africa. And I have a number of my colleagues um, from the global engagement team here this evening, but there's only one I'd like to point out. I'm sure you'll meet them all, but I want to point out Ibrahim El Mayet, stand up, good man, um, who is the regional business development manager for Africa. And if you're interested in taking up any of those ideas uh, with Ibrahim, please uh, buttonhole him afterwards. So I promised I'd be brief, and so I will end by inviting the BCA chairman, David Lamb, to formally start proceedings for this evening's special guest lecture by Dr. Mo Ibrahim. I'm delighted to say is an honorary doctor of SOAS, so an alumnus of the university. So Dr. Ibrahim, BCA colleagues and guests, we are really honored to have you here and you're all most warmly welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. What he didn't say, of course, was that in every spook and television film in the last 30 years, the Senate House has been shown as the headquarters of MI6. Uh, before I hand over to, to, to Arnold to uh, introduce uh, uh, Mo, I'd like to say a few words about the late Kay Whiteman. Firstly, we are, as Karen said, delighted to, to have Marva here tonight. She's been at the two previous uh, Kay Whiteman lectures. Uh, thank you for coming, Marva. This evening is in memory of Kay, who, to the end, kept his faith in Africa. 
Uh, not everyone here tonight will have had the fortune uh, to have known Kay personally. A senior advisor to the BCA board for many years, it was to Kay first that we turned for his views. Lagos boy, that's what he was called, spent the largest part of his adult life in Africa, and in the course of which he met every one of the pre-independence leaders from across British Africa. Kay was not just a journalist, and to borrow from the words of Michael Holman, whom you all remember as the former FT Africa editor, despite Africa having to bear the consequences of prejudice, ignorance, and avarice, Kay was consistent in the certainty that the continent's time will come. He wore his experience and authority lightly and with diffidence and an endearing modesty. As a journalist, he gave dignity to an all too often flawed profession. Thank you, Kay. Arnold. Um, let me join um, David. Welcome all of you to this event. Um, this is an annual event um, in honor of Kay. Kay loved Africa. Um, and he saw all the faults in Africa. He saw the challenges, but he loved it all the same. And that's why it's very, for me, greatest pleasure that Mo has agreed to, to share his perspectives with us. Um, this evening because Mo is the son of Africa. He loves Africa and he sees the problems and he sees the tragedies. I've been a big fan of his for several years, um, primarily because he made his money the old-fashioned way. He actually built something, uh, built it to global standards, and after selling it for a fairly handsome sum of money, he didn't retire on a yacht or, you know. He, he then came back and said, I'm going to try and make a difference. And the Moore Foundation has been working very hard to try and improve governance in Africa. Now, the test of how rigorous Moore is that he doesn't award that prize every year. And I think for the last few years, the African leaders have been wondering why none of them measures up to the standard. But thank you very much for doing that, because I think standards have to be maintained. There are several parallels here. Marva, we're very pleased to have you here. She stood by Kate throughout the good and bad years, and he saw Africa pre-independence, post-independence, and through all the challenges we've had. And we have all these lectures, and we talk about Africa, but we don't quite get there. You know, it's like the carrot at the end of the stick with the donkey, and the donkey is sort of going, but it doesn't quite grab the carrot. But the fact is that it is a continent that cannot be ignored. It's a continent that holds so much hope for the rest of the world. It's a continent that's going to come, probably contribute 50% of the world's population in the next 40 years. So the challenge of Africa, the prospect for Africa, the hope for Africa is something that we all find raises so much opportunity and so much belief that we will get there. 
is just taking a little bit longer than it should. Mo has been very active in being constructively critical of Africa. He's not shied away from telling the truth to the high and mighty. I've been at some of the events where um, some of the things he said has sort of, oh God, how did he say that? Um, but he says it, and the fact of the matter is the truth. And only the truth will set us free. And Kay was once a person who reported Africa through his good and bad times. And so for me, it's the greatest pleasure as one of his biggest fans to welcome Mo today to share his perspective with us. Mo. Thank you. Thank you very much for your very kind words. Uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, or as we Africans say, brothers and sisters. I think it's much nicer than ladies and gentlemen. And uh, a special welcome uh, to Madam Whiteman. Uh, your husband was a friend to Africa, and we, uh, we are grateful. Thank you. Uh, I have been warned that I have 20 minutes to speak, and I usually speak for one hour. And <laughs> there's just so much going on in Africa. Uh, but I think we wanted uh, to make room for some questions and understand some very tough questions uh, people planning to ask. So I have to respect that, and I'm going to watch the clock. So I'm not going to do a speech as much as I just put out some points out there uh, in these 20 minutes uh, available for me. Uh, let me start with the fact, Africa, we, we lag behind. In the community of nations, unfortunately, we are not doing well. Our people poorer, uh, our health is not that fantastic, our education system is not great, uh, inequality is high. We have issues. We lag behind, we have to acknowledge that and accept it. But where we go from here? It is really important to acknowledge that the responsibility is ours. It is our responsibility to deal with these issues. Uh, nobody, nobody is going to go into a country and develop that country on behalf of its people. It is our governments, it is our institutions, it is our people who have this responsibility. So that is, I think, we need to agree uh, from the outset. Uh, I'm the first to acknowledge that we had a very troubled history. I mean, we had slavery, we had colonialism, we had the Cold War, which is even worse, in my view, uh, because it damaged governance in Africa where terrible leaders were accommodated and fated, actually. Uh, it doesn't matter if they were really bad people uh, as long as they chose the, the right superpower to support. You all know that, and we know it. But fine, that's finished. And we need now to move forward. There's no, we don't have time 
to go and, and complain about the bus, etc. And I was engaging this morning with uh, the leadership uh, program of Tutu's uh, fellows, you know, one of the leadership programs in Africa, and we, we had a meeting all this morning. And uh, I was just saying to them, look, it's a tough world out there, and everybody colonized everybody else. Okay? Even the United States was a colony of this country. Everybody was colonized at some stage and had this country had been invaded by the Normans, by God knows the Scandinavians. So everybody had their, 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 their share of, of, of that experience, but people stand up, dust themselves, and, and go forward. It's time for us also to do that. So this is our responsibility. No amount of aid or help or goodwill from anybody else is going to sort our problems. We need to sort our problems, and let's agree that from the outset. So I think then where we start, good governance and leadership is at the heart of the work we need to really to do in Africa. Because without good governance and leadership, we will not move forward, frankly. To, you know, good governance is the, is, 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 is the essence of the engine of development. We need governments which really focus on, 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 on the well-being of its people, the proper management of our resources, whether material resources, natural resources, or human resources that need to be managed properly, cleanly, and then we can really move, uh, uh, move forward. Uh, that is essential, and we need to insist on that. And we need to bring this issue of governance to the table. We want the common man on the street to understand what is good governance. And uh, that, that, that is the heart of our work in the foundation, and that's what we keep. Uh, banging on about really. It, it, it is the, the core issue. But we also have to accept that our governments, our governments and our people, we, we don't live in a vacuum. This is a very connected, interdependent world. So we cannot ensure good governance and better behavior uh, without really help also from everybody around us. I mean, I give you a, some simple examples. You, you, you take corruption, transparency, etc. Corruption is not just about few corrupt African officials or African leaders. Each corrupt leader has partners in corruption, and without those partners, there would be no corruption. So, unless we deal with the issue of corruption globally. And that involves internationally, uh, you know, global business and other governments as well. Uh, we, we, we cannot ask for good governance in the state house and without asking for good governance at the boardroom. We need good governance at the boardroom of all these companies as well, because they are partners in corruption. And I found it a little bit, well, not a little bit, actually, a lot uh, uh, incredible that many 
European leaders, uh, uh, you know, love to lecture us in Africa about corruption. And people forget that until the year 2000, corruption was legal in Europe. Do you know until the year 2000, bribery was considered business expenses? It's tax exempt, actually. <laughs> Ask any, you have any CFOs here? That, that, you know, that, that is a fact. And uh, started to become illegal 15 or 17 years ago, and became a criminal offense only 15 years ago. And uh, wherever you go around in Europe, you ask the question, okay, you guys introduce this laws against corruption. How many French companies have been prosecuted for corruption in Africa? Zero. How many German companies? Zero. Swedish companies? Zero. How many? Britain. I'm only aware of the case of, of, of airport equipment in Tanzania. Otherwise, there's no British company and the sand was, was tried for corruption. So, there is no corruption then. What are we talking about? So, we require also better standards from those uh, who keep breaching us about corruption. Please clean your houses, clean your governments, and clean up your companies as well, because you are an integral part of the problem. We will do our work in Africa. You do your work here as well. That's how it works, because otherwise it doesn't work. So this is a point I think we need uh, uh, to make it clear. And it's not only corruption. Actually, although corruption is really bad, it has this uh, emotional item to it, uh, side to it. Actually, much more money is lost through the flight of money out of Africa. Uh, profit shifting is a big problem for us. And the issue of taxation, many important companies don't pay taxes in Africa. And we keep talking about this and nobody wants to listen. Until in this country, a few years ago, people woke up and say, oh my God, Starbucks is not paying taxes here. Google is not paying taxes here. Those guys are not paying taxes here. The European Union started, you know, open cases against, against companies. It, then you discover that it's not only us who have been robbed. You guys too are being robbed. And we need really to get our act together there. And the problem is not necessarily because companies and, 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 and businesses are acting criminally. They are not. They're just using uh, uh, the, 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 the rather strange situation where business has gone global, acts function globally, while our regulations, our laws, our taxation system are in silos. And then we ended up with countries competing with each other uh, 
you know, how to attract a little bit more money here on the expense of this other guy. It became a race to the bottom, and I think most of you, or all of you, understand uh, uh, these issues. We need to stand up and say, hey, we need to clean uh, uh, our house here and act properly. So, integrity, ethics, etc., is required for everybody because it doesn't work uh, 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 otherwise. Take an example which I find it really very strange. There is a class of companies, they call it anonymous companies. Are you aware of that? There's companies where nobody knows who are the shareholders, who is the beneficial owner, because they are covered under veneers of trustees, etc. And uh, we say exactly why, what function this class of companies really serve. And nobody, no legal business has a need for such companies because you cannot put it in your balance sheet. How can you account for it? So who are the majority of the users of these anonymous companies? Drug dealers, some of our corrupt leaders, if you are a corrupt president, say, and you stole a few hundred million dollars here or a billion dollars there, where are you going to put it now? You cannot put it under the mattress. It's just too much. You cannot walk to the local bank and put the money there. Uh, what are you going to do? You'll have to put it in one of those anonymous companies, trustees companies, hidden somewhere. That's where the corrupt money is and nobody can trace it. Nigerian jump up and down, but you know, where is our money, We're stolen money, 10 billion, 20 billion, 30 billion. Of course, you cannot get it back. Buhari came here and, you know, uh, uh, the current president, and he shouted, I get me my money back, where is my money? Yes, your money came, passed through here, London, but sorry, we cannot find it because it went into these vehicles. So we ask, why we have this? And people, so, so amazingly, people think of anonymous companies and, and, and uh, you know, this kind of trustees, uh, trustee company as uh, sitting somewhere in a leafy, exotic Caribbean island or somewhere, though it's no longer leafy after the hurricane, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, actually, there is more of these companies registered in USA than in Panama. And everybody jumped up and down about Panama. Leave Panama alone, look at United States. You have more anonymous companies than Panama. So people need to walk the talk. Don't stand in your perch and lecture us about honesty, about corruption, about integrity, unless you make sure you clean your own house. I think that is, is something we need to demand really from everybody. Uh, now, another point I wish to make, and I keep my eye on the, uh, <laughs> the clock over there, is uh, uh, everybody keep asking me the question, is Africa really rising, but now the commodity prices is not rising anymore? I really please ask people not to keep asking this incredible question about Africa. 
Africa rising, Africa sinking. Africa basketball case, Africa this, Africa that. There's nothing called Africa. There are 54 countries in Africa. Each country deserves their own story. We have to respect that. And we need to, to spend the time and energy to understand what's happening in each country. And they are different. So there's no such slogans as Africa rising and Africa, African pessimism, African optimism. There is only African realism. Let's be realistic about Africa. So this is a point I wanted to make before anybody starts to ask me about Africa. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we have to accept that we have some serious challenges in front of us. And I'm trying to list just a few of the issues we need to focus on as Africans. The biggest problem, I think, is that tsunami of young people who are coming to the workforce every year. Somewhere between 15 to 20 million, nobody knows the exact figure, roughly, all the statistics about Africa is roughly coming to the workforce every year. Where are we going to get the job for those guys? 15, 20 million people. This is the number of jobs we need every year. How are we going to address that? This is, 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 is an important issue, uh, 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 challenge also uh, for us. And maybe also we find all the suggestions we hear and there. I didn't hear anybody talked about family planning. We should also talk about family planning. Why would we never talk about that? Okay. Uh, second point I wish to make really uh, is really about our few of our countries are mineral rich and oil rich countries economies and. They have to demonstrate an amazing failure uh, to really utilize their, their natural resources uh, 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 appropriately. Uh, during the, you know, nobody uh, tried to uh, use some of the fat from the uh, 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 good years to help during the lean years. All these commodities, we know it is cyclic. You know, goes up and down, Brazil goes up and down. Nobody trying to manage uh, uh, this for the long term, which also is another political issue about the short termism of our politicians. This not just an African trait. This applies here, applies everywhere. There is a poverty of politics around us anywhere, and people just looking at short term uh, 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 without paying attention to the uh, long term. So none of these countries tried to diversify its economy, and neither tried to, uh, none of them tried uh, to really build uh, some reserves for the difficult years. So we have, those countries had a big shock uh, uh, in the recent years. Uh, we keep talking about regional integration, it's sad to say that we have not achieved much yet. We are moving forward, but not enough. We have to understand 54 countries, this make us 54 subscale countries. And there is no room for the 
little guys in this world. You know, you can see people like China or India, they go throw their weight around. And uh, it's important, the size of the market for the leverage you can uh, 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 exercise. I always say, you compare China with Africa, we have almost the same number of people, you know, take, give or take 100 million or so. But China is a country. Africa is not a country. But when you leverage 13, uh, you know, one, 1 billion or 1.3 billion people, it's different. Those guys need fast trains. Okay, to go to Japan, we like your bullet train, come and sell us some, but you need to transfer technology. And a few years later, they outsell Japan selling the fast trains. Uh, take mobile phones. All mobile phones almost now are made in China. Even Apple uh, also made in China. You know, iPhones are made in China. And again, they say, if you want to sell anything here, you come and make it here. And guess what? We're going to learn, and, and, and you have to transfer technology, and we do it here. We have like five, six hundred million telephone, mobile phone users in Africa. We don't make one phone. Why? Because we're all these little guys. You have no economic weight. You have no leverage to really uh, uh, force uh, uh, your way through. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We need to achieve the single market in Africa. We need to start to act like an economic block because that is really uh, important for us. Uh, another issue uh, worries me is the, uh, the attack on civil society and the space for civil society in Africa is closing. And that is worrying because civil society is an important partner for the government. Civil society is not an enemy of the government. Civil society is trying to help the governments, and that needs to be understood. And uh, I was really appalled to see how many African countries now are introducing legislation to limit the capacity of civil society and to ban them also from receiving any money, any donations, any uh, outside help. And it was so ridiculous. Uh, that's what's going to say, oh, you, you classify you as, as a foreign agent if you receive money from abroad. This is so ridiculous when the same African leaders who pass these rules go around Europe and the United States with their begging power asking for foreign aid and foreign help. Does that make it them creators, agents? Why African governments or African leaders go and beg for money and then they go back to the country and say, if civil society accepts money from a foundation, Ford Foundation or whatever foundation, well, then you are, you are not really patriotic and you are a foreign agent and I'm going to close you down. This is ridiculous. And people need to defend the, 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 uh, the, the, that space. And I'm not saying that civil society is blameless. Because sometimes civil society organization was used as a front for a political party. And especially in countries which doesn't allow very much space for political dissent, 
you can see uh, the dynamics here. So both sides have issues to deal with, but we definitely need uh, civil society uh, to help us to move forward. Uh, another issue is that uh, a combination of uh, youth unemployment, the increased inequality, unfortunately, in our societies, the marginalization of minority groups, whether ethnic minorities or religious minorities, all that leads to conflict, to violence, and ultimately to terrorism. This is worrying something we need to pay attention to. We need to be very tolerant towards each other, and we, 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 we have to find a way to live together without all these uh, 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 approaches. And actually, not only that, I'm also worried about the, the, the xenophobic and homophobic attitudes which start to appear in some of our, uh, of our countries. And it is so sad to see some of our leaders. And when I say some of our leaders, I don't mean all the leaders. We have some wonderful leaders. But some of our leaders tried to, to, to ride this uh, cheap populist wave and to mount campaigns against gay and lesbians, and, and which is so ridiculous. I mean, uh, uh, the rabbit in the banner of uh, African uh, 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 values and African customs and African culture. Let's do that. And where is them, you know, to marry 15 women? Oh, that's great. That's okay. African culture. We use African culture to cover anything, you know. That is, that, come on, that's not acceptable. And you get out of people's bedrooms. You have no right to tell anybody whom to love or how to love anybody. That is, that's a totally personal issue. And it's ridiculous. It comes from countries and leaders where level of poverty in their countries is appalling. And instead spending their time to see how can they move their country forward, they go around and all this uh, uh, crap and uh, campaigns. This is nonsense. People need to have the courage to stand up and say, hey, get, guys, get, get serious. What is this? And we need to stand up to those leaders, and we need to fight in principles, really, uh, to stop uh, uh, this uh, uh, nonsense. But regardless of the challenges we have, I'm really optimistic about our future. I'm optimistic for a simple reason. And when I look at the young generation, and uh, I told you this morning I spent time with about 40 young uh, African wonderful people. And uh, you can see a new generation of young Africans who are better educated than our generation better connected than our generation. And very importantly, they are less respectful of their elders than our generation. And that's important, because they, they need to stand up and, and say it as it is. That's why I'm really optimistic, and thank you for your patience. Thank you.
I think the expression is he doesn't mince words. Uh, and this is on stage, so I can only imagine what the offline version is. Uh, <laughs> I'd certainly like to hear it, to be honest with you. Um, anyway, we're going to move into the Q&A, and um, I might give the AV people a heart attack, but I'm going to move this thing over here. Um, to start with, let me just get a sense. How many people in the room would like to make a comment or ask a question? Yeah, I thought you'd need more time. Uh, don't, as long as it's not about Africa, you'll be fine. Uh, well, so while you think about some questions, and I know there are people who want to get involved in this discussion, um, Mo, uh, I, I'd like to ask you, not, not about Africa rising on this, but I'd like to, to start by talking about people. We, we often talk of uh, Africa's resource wealth, its minerals, its oils, its, 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 its gas, et cetera, et cetera. It's a bit of a cliche, but um, the only real wealth Africa has is its people. Um, and I'd, I, I'd like to get a sense from you of your, your perspective on some of the scenes that we've been seeing over the years, especially along the Mediterranean the migration from Africa that we're seeing, and the sheer misery, quite frankly, of, uh, of the people who are making that journey. We've, we've become so desensitized to it that uh, stories of young Somalis being deliberately drowned um, and, and, you know, off the coast of Yemen, I think it was, they sort of passed without notice. Uh, how, as an African, as a human being, um, you know, how do you feel when you see these scenes? And then you, you know, and you, how do you reconcile that with talk of, oh yeah, you know, Africa is doing well, and you know, the investment story for Africa and this and that. Meanwhile, its future is literally drowning. Uh, what I feel simply is, uh, I feel as an African, I feel humiliation because uh, for young Africans to take this trouble. I mean, this people is not only the Mediterranean. They have to go through the desert. It takes them sometimes two or three years going, try to go through the desert to reach Libya, to reach somewhere, and to end up in these uh, rickety boats having bathed so much uh, uh, to the smile. What, what that means? This means those guys have no hope in their countries. This means there's something seriously wrong in their country. Why are they leaving? Either they are discriminated against, or uh, you have a civil war, people fleeing for their life, or people just cannot find a job, they cannot find a hope, and they say, fine, I mean, if I'm going to put my life on the line to do that. So it is, it is very, very upsetting. And uh, I think when we think of these problems, I really need to take it back to its root and where these people come from and what's happening in these countries. And every case you find, it's a failure of governance. A failure of governance. Civil war, it is, 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 is discrimination against people, it is safety. And that's why I think everything starts from governance. You want to stop that. It's not by policing the Mediterranean. People will just do it. It's not by you know shooting uh, smugglers or burning their boats or whatever. It's not. Uh, you have to understand uh, Europe problem is how to deal. Okay, one they had one million immigrants probably. Spare a thought for African countries, much poorer than the five hundred million 
wealthy people of Europe, where they have to deal with multiples of those numbers of migrants in their country as well. So I have no sympathy when yeah. Germans or anybody complain and say, guys, how many you know, refugees we have in Kenya, how many refugees we have in Sudan, we have to deal with much, much more number. Even in the Middle East, a small country like Nigeria, Jordan or like Lebanon, much, much smaller, have two or three million uh, 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 refugees. So it is a big problem. Everybody have it. And that's why I don't have sympathy when 500 million European make a big fuss or when Poland, country of 60 million, say if I take 1,000 uh, refugee, there's Christianity is in danger. I mean, I, I just find it unbelievable. Uh, so that's where, that's not, I don't want even to discuss that. Uh, my, my point of contention is what's happening in the countries of those migrants. That's where we need to go and to, that is where we need to sort things out. Mm -hmm. And as you said, that always traces back to governance. Yeah. Now, speaking of governance, we've had a busy month and a half or so of elections across Africa. And uh, elections are, they're, you know, they don't tell you everything about governance, but they're an indicator of where things are. And we've seen some, you know, some quite dramatic events, some quite uh, predictable uh, results, some quite unpredictable results. Um, I'll let you be as direct and specific as you want. I don't know if you want to comment on specific countries, but uh, and we have some big elections coming up in Zimbabwe next year. Nigeria is gearing up again for elections in early 2019. What's your take on, on uh, the, la the event, recent events and uh, the state of governance as far as elections go? Does it tell us anything meaningful? I think the first take I really uh, want to emphasize is not the headlines, it is some of the pictures. I see hundreds and hundreds of Africans lining up in the heat from early morning to vote. I see numbers, people, 90% of, of electorate going to, to vote. How many people here votes for elections 55 percent in a good year 60 percent of the that's a very good year yeah a very good year in africa it's over 90 percent and that tell me, say something that people really want to have a say want to have a voice they believe in democracy and sometimes we fail them unfortunately but still people cling to this hope of being able to have a say that is the future. That, what, that is the positive take, I take it. Yes, there are going to be issues here, uh, uh, and, 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 but the level of scrutiny of this election, I think, is going up, and, that, and, and that's important. And uh, it's a mixed bag, uh, what's happening, yeah. Um, I understand if you don't want to comment on it, but uh, how do you feel about the decision in Kenya? To, um, to call for a new election. Right. Big uh, moment. It is a, it's a very big moment, but I think it's a little bit unacceptable for the judges to keep us waiting for three weeks to tell us what is wrong. Because they said 60 days you have to have an election. The commission had a problem, so people need to do something about the commission. How much time you need to sort out the commission? And then you take three weeks to tell us what is wrong? Either you know what is wrong or you don't. You should tell us immediately what is wrong so we can fix it to move forward. So 
I, I have that problem really because practically, how, how we're gonna deal with this problem? Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm glad at least both sides accepted the, 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 uh, uh, the, the judgment and uh, that's a rule of law, mm -hmm. we have to accept that. Uh, I don't think Kenyatta uh, Uhuru was, was right to uh, have a go at the judges. Uh, he has a right to disagree with that, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, at least he accepted uh, mm -hmm. that he, uh, the need for, uh, uh, for election. And what we hope now is for a peaceful rerun. But judges should not be living in a bubble. They need to understand this is a country which can explode. Mm -hmm. And you make that decision and you give people 60 days and say change the commission. And, but you didn't tell us to change what exactly. Yes. They still haven't. Yeah. Really reveal yeah, what, what the mean, problem is? I mean, they, I think that's irresponsible. Yeah. Okay, so a few hands have gone up in the interim, so we'll, we'll, I'll take them in the order that they, oh God, they're, they're shooting up now. Um, we'll start at the back, the first hand there. I'll say again, very brief introduction, please, and please be as concise as possible because we want to get as many voices in here as we can. Uh, yeah, we'll start at the back and then we'll work our way around the room. We'll take two or three at a time. Thank you. Good evening, Dr. Ibrahim. Thank you for your remarks. Could you share a perspective on the role of investment in enabling the, the potential that you've described? Uh, significant investment will be required. You've described how some investment plays within the rules, but uh, isn't perhaps uh, taking that long-term responsible approach and the um, demonstration of good governance that you rightly espouse. Thank you. Sorry, I, I did so the, the, the role of uh, investment in addressing some of the, the challenges that you've outlined. Um, We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll take two more, ah, okay. and then you know you can respond as yes, you uh, as you want. Uh, we'll we'll do it democratically. We we'll start in the middle. We'll take one from the right. Uh, the, there's a hand at the front here. I'll, Second row. I'll need a microphone because that's very loud. Okay. There's a microphone there. Are saturated with old age pensioners. Uh huh. If you look at government. Saturated with what? Saturated with old age pensioners. If you look at governments from Cape to Cairo, the average age of an African president is at least 70. We look at okay. Zimbabwe. You've got 10 more seconds to, 10 more seconds. to get to the point. I'd just like to find out you spoke about respect. How can we, the young people, approach our elders? without disrespecting them, to ask them to step aside and give the young people a chance. Okay, thank you. It's, it's a good point, you know. It's not that easy to, uh, to defy authority and seniority. Anybody on the left? No? Okay. We'll go back to the middle then. Second row. We'll come back. We'll come up for a second round. Um, Steve Cameron, BCA board member and Africa Centre board member. Uh, when it comes to good governance, the role of opposition is crucial, but uh, many governments in Africa are very good at neutralizing opposition, or when they get into power, they buy some of the opposition members and invite them to join governments. How, what can be done to help oppositions thrive uh, and be successful? Okay, so we had three points. The first was around the role of investment. Secondly, how do you defy the older generation? Because uh, it's easier said than done. And last but not least, the opposition. Right. Uh, the, the role of investment, I, 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 I believe 
investment is is the only way for development because how can we create business, create jobs, create prosperity? So we have to have that is obvious. Uh, but we also ask for ethical investment, which is not difficult uh, to do ethical investment. I mean, all of us ought to be ethical in our investment. And uh, uh, actually, some of us also going way ahead, you know, beyond that. Uh, we also try to encourage what we call impact investment. And I want to differentiate impact investment from what is called social investment. Because I admit I don't understand what is social investment is, because any investment ought to be social, but uh, fair enough. Uh, but by impact investment, uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, we, we uh, uh, launched uh, a fund uh, early this year. Uh, a group of entrepreneurs and do-gooders were con sat together, you know, having a whatever, coffee or other things. And uh, uh, we talk about okay, how we should do things. And those people like uh, Richard Branson, people like uh, um, uh, Hoffman, Reed Hoffman of, of LinkedIn, and uh, there was uh, uh, Skoll, Jeff Skoll, is Bono, the, the rock singer, you know, the, the number of those people. I said, okay, why don't you do an impact fund, which is supposed to be profitable, like any other fund, but in making an investment decision, you need to measure the social impact decision and the outcome and the, the, the uh, climate or planet outcome. And... Uh, so we teamed with TBG and created the fund. Actually, we put the rest $2 billion for that fund. And all those guys put their air money in, in that fund. And then we, again, for governance, we got an independent body to measure the impact of any investment. So when an investment committee make a decision and compare this investment to, to invest here or invest here, people need to see what the outcome of this investment is, not only money-wise, but social and, 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 and environmental-wise. Uh, I think that's an, an interesting model for, uh, uh, for investment. You have to make money because it's not business. It's not a business if you don't make money. You are bankrupt, you know, so it doesn't help anybody. Uh, but you need also to look at other impacts your investment is making. And that's the investment. Uh, young people. Uh, I, 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 somebody asked me a similar question this morning, a little bit younger than you. And <laughs> he said, they said also, uh, how can you empower us? And I said, this is, this is ridiculous. You want me to empower you? You go and empower yourself. What do you mean I'm empowering you? Do you know that young people are the largest constituency in Africa? If you guys get together, you are the largest ever party in Africa, you win any election. So what, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You, you know, you, you are the largest. I fully accept the issue of the age. I, I mean, I, was, I remember I was speaking, uh, delivering Mandela annual lecture some three years ago, and uh, South Africa is a very special place, of course, <laughs> in Africa. 
And I don't see issue. I said, you know, I mean, you look at because Mugabe was just declared his standing up again. I mean, this guy mm. going to be hundred years old in office, <laughs> literally. And, and, and uh, yes, and uh, I, I, I was just saying. I mean, why, why Africans doing this? We, why we love geriatrics? And uh, you say, look, Clinton was president when he's forty-five years old, and uh, American economy is bigger than the whole of African economies. Uh, what about Obama was 47 or something just just to your point what are you waiting for what about fear what's about fear perhaps they're afraid of defiance the consequences of defiance uh, then then you deserve what you get <laughs> absolutely you, you don't have any 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 pity no. if you guys don't want to sort out your future that's your problem I'm sorry I think the key word here is responsibility. It's up to uh, it's up to you to do yeah, something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, final point about the opposition. How can uh, for this round? Do we have time for another round? Two more after this. Okay. Um, opposition. How can you empower the opposition? I guess it's a similar question. Uh, yeah. I, 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 we we don't empower anybody. <laughs> you empower yourselves. If you are an opposition worthy of the word opposition, you stand up. And. You should not be afraid. You may end up in prison. But you know what? Prison can be a great platform. Mandela became only famous because he went to prison. If Mandela didn't go to Robben Island, would he have become Mandela? Any volunteers? No? Okay. Um, that, that is a heavy lifting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay? Um, Arnold, you wanted to, to come in on this. There's a microphone on the way. My question was actually on something you touched on, and then you move on, which was the you moved on, which was the issue of integration in Africa. Ah. And I think that's something that we we probably have not invested enough time and effort. Obviously, politics and all that takes some time, but integration is something that can happen if people really want it to happen. Yeah. And the example I like to give, I like to give very clear examples. In Africa today, it's easier to travel with an American or a British passport than with an African passport. Yes. Absolutely ridiculous, but that's what the situation is. The largest renewable energy space in the world is in Africa, it's the Sahara Desert. Okay, Morocco is doing some stuff out of it, but you don't have people there, you don't have to displace anybody, you don't have to do any environmental impact studies, but we're not doing it. We've had the Yamasukuro Agreement, Open Skies, even before Europe had it, nothing happened. So I guess my question to you, and I, I think I have part of the answer, but I would like your perspective on it, is why is it that we all pretty much know what we should be doing, but we're not doing it? That is, that is a very good question because we are not accountable. So our guys go to these meetings and they make all kind of wonderful statements. You know, they went to uh, Mozambique 15 years ago and said agriculture is important for the future of Africa. 60% of our people doing agriculture will have the largest amount of area, arable lands which have not been used. We're going to commit to spend 10% of our budget in agriculture every year. 17 years ago, only three countries fulfilled that. Talk is cheap, my friend. <laughs> yeah. But people should hold them accountable. 
in every word they said, you know, but unfortunately we don't do that. Walk the talk. Okay, we'll take one more from the right of the room, hand in the third row. I apologize to all the other hands that, that went up. Um, hopefully there'll be time for chit-chat afterwards. Yes, please. Hi. Yeah, good evening. Uh, Nilesh Shah Just two broad questions. One, Africa incubates one of the best technologies in the world, like, say, M-Pesa, which they've created. Yeah. Then on the other hand, why does Africa sell its assets to the East and the West when they are so capable of incubating such world-class technologies? Africa, as you say, it has got the youngest growing educated population. So why so much emphasis on election all the time? Why don't they use their resources to grow their countries? I think that was the sub-subject of my lecture. <laughs> well, I, I think I think the the point there is it's kind of been it's kind of been addressed. There's a myriad of issues. Um, interestingly, M-Pesa, of course, was originally funded by DFID here in the UK, which speaks to the need to also make sure that you've got good partnerships. Um, we have to wrap up, but but Mo, I'd like to throw in one final question. I know it's not your decision. I know you don't get involved, but do you see any contenders for the Ibrahim Prize next year? I really cannot even say a word because I'll, I'll be fired from the foundation. Because you understand, I'm, please, please you, need to, you need to know this. I'm not a member of the prize committee. The prize committee is a totally separate structure from the foundation. I chair the foundation board. This prize committee is separate. It has its own chair. They have their own infrastructure. They have their own analysts. They have their own investigators. They do. They have investigators, policemen. And they do their work. We never see anything until the day before they join the board meeting and the chair of that body tells us their decision. And the decision is, is, is final. So we have no influence of that. So if I stand now and say, oh, you know, I think this guy should be one, I mean, it would be very embarrassing because the Bryce Committee say, what is this guy is doing? I mean, what is, he has no vote even. Now, I think that's a, that's a good note to, to end on. Obviously, we could, you know, we could do this for hours, but uh, time is, is always against us. Uh, but it's a good illustration that, you know, it's important to do things the right way. Uh, governance does matter. Uh, Mo, thank you very much. I don't know, do you want me to hand over to anyone or can we wrap up here? Okay, well, thank you very much, Mo, thank and please you. join me in, uh, in thanking our speaker for today. Thank you. Thank you.